Picture this scene. You're on the third-story balcony of a building that's engulfed in a five-alarm fire. There's no way out. The stairs are inaccessible. The elevators are out. You can't even get to the door. As you feel the heat on your back, you have to accept there's no way out. This will be the end. You hear sirens. First responders start to arrive. Firemen spot you, and they form a circle. They're yelling up to you that you have to jump. What do you do? Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Luke Miller, and I like to talk in the dark. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Um, you may know me better as Deborah's husband, as Audrey, Leanna, Jason, and Colin's dad. I'm also the Celebrate Recovery Ministry leader here at Grace Fellowship. What I have in mind to discuss today is probably the single most important factor in all of Christianity, in all of our lives, in all of eternity. What I want to talk about today is the gospel. I want to address it from our desperate need of it. I want to dig into it a little bit, and I want us to hopefully leave today with a better understanding of what it is, what it means, how it impacts us, and how we can better communicate that to the world around us. The first thing, if you don't know, is the gospel literally translates the good news. It is that we had a need, God provided to meet that need, if we'll believe. There's a tendency today in the American church, or in the Western church at least, to present a more pleasant version of the gospel than we might find in Scripture. For example, we see supposed gospel tracts that amount to little more than God loves you and has a plan for your life. While that's true, it is not the gospel. And uh, this unfortunately can reduce the impact that the gospel message has. It lessens the power of the gospel, and in turn, I believe that type of thinking has left a generation of Americans, including inside the church, wondering why they even need it. Many in church today don't want a Savior for their soul. They want a Savior for their soul, but they don't want a Lord of their life. He's both. We can't pick one or the other. I'd even say that there are a lot of people in churches on Sunday mornings that don't even feel that they need a Savior. Don't be looking at your neighbor. Come on, that's a little bit funny. I need Sherman up here. That's what I need. So they tell you when you're putting together a message to find one sentence that encompasses the whole thing. Um, it was kind of hard to find one sentence that encompassed the entire gospel, so I pilfered one from David Platt. And David Platt says the gospel in one sentence, the good news is the just God of the universe looked down on hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear the wrath of God against sin on the cross and show his power over sin and the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. There may be better versions of that out there, but be sure you cannot leave one phrase out of that sentence without undermining the entire gospel. Let's look at the first part of that sentence to see why we need it. The just God of the universe. 
First and foremost, we need the gospel because God is just and He will not ignore your sin. Billy Graham said this. He said, Modern man does not like to think of God in terms of wrath, anger, and judgment. He likes to remake God to conform to his own wishful thinking so that he can make himself comfortable in his sins. This modern God has the attributes of love, mercy, and forgiveness, but is without justice. But what I read in Romans 1, 18 and 20 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress their, the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. The wrath of God is being revealed, and we are without excuse. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Move to Romans 2, 2 through 6. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness was intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His judgment, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. It's essential for us to understand this character attribute of God. That is, God is just. And because He is just, He must deal with our sin. If God was not just, God would not be God. Because God is just and He must deal with our sin, we are hopelessly dead without Christ. John 3.36 tells us, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now for God's wrath to remain on me means that God's wrath had to be on me. I didn't have to earn it. I was born into it. I was born in sin, separated from God. In fact, that is the very problem that's trying to be resolved in all of the gospel. We as creatures created for a relationship with God because of sin are now separated from Him. And then we have one of perhaps the most stinging indictments of all mankind. We read in Romans 3, 10 through 19. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way. The way of peace they know not. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. God is just, therefore God will not dismiss your sin. He must deal with it. And because of this, you are doomed already. You're standing on that balcony. You feel the heat. 
You're desperately looking for an escape. Are you starting to get the point? No one qualifies. We have all inherently fallen short. We are all hopelessly dead and doomed to God's wrath. And it's not because we were bad people. It's because we were already condemned. Let me make this point. One of the most popular Sunday school verses ever. We all know it. John 3.16. I want you to say it with me. I don't want to say it by myself. I want you to say it with me. All right. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I know that's hard. We all know different translations, but that's okay. But the one we never memorize is one sentence below it. John 3.18 Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because, why? They have not believed in the name of God's only Son. It's by simply not believing that we were condemned. You're standing on the balcony. You feel the heat. And you're desperately looking for an escape. Now I realize this is how it ends. I believe the lack of effectiveness, dare I even say, the lack of power that we see in the church today stems from the fact that our churches are full of people that don't need a Savior. And I think the best way to mitigate this problem is to preach the gospel in its fullness so that people will understand their desperate need of someone who can fix their hopeless situation. Is He your Lord and Savior? Let's look at those two words. We use them all the time. Is He your Lord? Do you unquestionably obey His commands and His will for your life? If you can't answer yes to that, He may not be your Lord. Is He your Savior? See, if I make Him my Lord, He is then my Savior. Now, I'm not asking here whether you've ever raised your hand at a church service and said a prayer at some point, I'm not asking if you were led in the sinner's prayer by a preacher or a leader in the church and they told you, congratulations, you never have to worry about going to hell. Should it concern us that nowhere in Scripture do we see the phrase, invite Jesus into your heart? Nor do we see, accept Jesus as your Savior? As if He somehow needs my acceptance? I need Him. Nor do we find a sinner's prayer as if there is a magic set of words that I can chant and somehow God is obligated to save me. Now, I'm not trying to be the word police here. And I recognize the reason that these phrases are used. And many of us, myself included, came to salvation through the use of these tools but we need to realize that there is a real danger in misleading people to think that these tools we're using are the gospel when they're just supposed to point us toward the gospel. I've also spoken to many members in churches who have had similar experiences to that, only to realize later that they were never born again. That can be very damaging to tell someone they're saved when they're not. In fact, it might be more than damaging. It might be the worst thing you could possibly do. Imagine one day coming before Jesus, and as we read in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
I don't want to be like the many on that day that will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And he's going to look at them and say plainly, get away from me. I never knew you, you evil doers. Think about this with me. The many he's referring to there, they were casting out demons in his name. They were performing many miracles in his name, prophesying and all this. These are people that we'd want to put on this stage. These are people we'd consider super Christians. We'd hire them to head up the evangelism outreach program. They thought they were saved. They were doing all the right things, living the godly life. And I'm told by Jesus' words on that day, on that day of judgment, He will turn them away because one, they've either lied to themselves or they've been lied to and they were never saved. Christ being your Savior is not just mentally or intellectually accepting the fact that a man named Jesus died on a cross and I don't want to go to hell. But is He your Savior? Do you really need Him? Were you really hopelessly dead? Have you ever acknowledged that? Were you standing on that balcony with the fire to your back knowing this is the end? I talk to people all the time that think that God is a good idea. Jesus is great. We love Jesus. We love everything about Jesus, but they don't need a Savior. Sure, they have some rough edges they need sanded off. Sure, they can learn to be a better husband, wife, father, mother. They want their kids to socialize with good Christian kids. Sure, they could use a haircut, new clothes, maybe even a mani-pedi, but they are certainly not dead. After all, it's awfully judgmental of me to assume that somebody else would be dead and completely unworthy. I didn't say it. God said it. God called me and He called you hopelessly dead in our transgressions. Not because we were bad people, but because as we read in John 3, because we were already condemned because we had not believed on Him. Were you dead? Are you hopelessly dead? I hope so. Some of you are saying, whoa there, preacher, that's pretty confrontational. Well, the cross of Christ is a place of confrontation. It's where we are confronted with our desperate situation and my complete inability to do anything about it. In fact, Billy Graham said the cross is confrontational because the cross demands a confrontation. And we're living in a day where a cross on public property is offensive to the world. This rings very true. I'll tell you this, though, that cross that's offensive to the world, it was far, what it represents is far more offensive to God. So, we are dead without hope because God is just and He cannot ignore our sin. One of my favorite biblical characters of all time, David. David, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then committing murder to try to cover up that adultery, was confronted by Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes to David and says, Nathan, you messed up. I mean, David, you messed up. And David immediately admits, I have sinned against God. Nathan immediately responds, your sin is put away from you. It's hard to wrap our mind around God's justice 
when we see that. It creates a, a, a tension. Let me put it to you this way. If he had, we had a judge in Greene County who had a man in front of him that confessed to murder to cover up his adultery. And that judge said, don't worry about it. We're not going to hold it against you. We'd kick him off the bench and we'd demand a retrial for that person because that is not just. So what we start to see is this tension is created between God's justice and God's forgiveness. I even heard it said it said this way, because God is holy and completely just, His offer of forgiveness is a threat to His very character. Once we've acknowledged that God is a just God, and we recognize our need for a Savior, this brings us to that impasse. This brings us to that point of tension where I need my sin to not be held against me, but God is just. What is God's solution to this tension? What is God's solution to what I see as an apparent conflict? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news in one sentence. It is that the God of the universe looked down on hopelessly sinful people and sent His Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear the wrath of God against sin on the cross and to show His power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in Him will be reconciled to God forever. Tell you something, this forgiveness of sins that we can be tempted to throw around so easily and so lightly can easily turn into a cheap version of grace that we sometimes hear pitched as a false gospel, albeit with good intentions to try and sell our ideas on salvation. It wasn't cheap, it was very costly. It was only obtained, it could only be obtained through one solution, and that was the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is why it's the good news. Romans 3, 22-25, righteous, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. And then in verse 26 we read, He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it, why? To demonstrate His righteousness. At that present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies. Those who have faith in Jesus. Did you catch that? Just and the one who justifies. It is the only possible answer to that conflict between His justice and His forgiveness of us that's granted through faith. So I was hopelessly dead. Now I've heard this good news of Jesus Christ and my heart burns within me knowing that it's truth. What do I do? As we just read, we have faith. We believe in Jesus Christ and in His Gospel. And what does it mean to believe, to have faith? What are we talking about here? We're talking about saving faith.
if I'm on that balcony of that burning building and those firemen are yelling, jump, it's going to take faith to jump. i got to believe a few things, first of all, to convince me to jump. i got to believe that I'm dead if I stay here because nothing else is going to convince me to jump. i got to believe and recognize that there's no other way out. The stairs aren't accessible. The elevator's out. My only way is to jump. Then i got to believe they're going to catch me or at least make a great effort to. The kind of faith that Paul writes about to the Romans is the same kind of faith that James tells us about, that saving faith. It's a faith that demands obedience. James says in chapter 2, verse 17, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone says, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe and tremble. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. We're talking about wheelbarrow faith. Now, I know you have no clue what I'm referring to there. But if you know my dad, you've probably heard one of his illustrations. He talks about uh, the world-famous high-wire walker, Carl Walenda, the great Walenda, when he's planning his high-wire walk across the Tallulah Gorge. He gets up there and he walks across with the pole, and on his way back he's pushing a wheelbarrow across the, the high-wire. He gets to the other side and He asked a bystander, he says, do you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across this tightrope? Of course I do, I just saw you do it. Get in the wheelbarrow. So I was hopelessly dead. I've heard this good news of Jesus Christ and my heart burns within me knowing that it is true. What do I do? How do I get in the wheelbarrow? How do I jump off the balcony? Well, I'm glad you asked. Acts 2, 37 and 38. We see Peter gets done delivering the first gospel message since the resurrection. And they ask this very question. And he tells them to repent and be baptized. Repentance is the key to faith. Faith is the key to repentance. It's two sides of the same coin. If you believe that Jesus is the Lord who saves, that being faith, It is only because you have changed your mind about your sin and yourself. That's repentance. If you repent, it's because you trust that Jesus is the Lord who saves. When I left that example of being in the burning building, I was still standing there. I believed I would die. I knew there was no other way. And I believed that the firemen would catch me. There was one thing still missing. I had to jump. It would have done me no good to stand on the balcony of that building telling you how much I believed they would catch me if I would actually jump. Repentance, true repentance, requires doing something. Your faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. James 2.18 Repentance is our faith in action. 
It's turning away from sin and turning toward God. It is a change of heart that produces new behavior. We've covered a lot of material. I've discussed that God is just and that He must deal with our sin. That we are without excuse, sinful and already condemned, not because we were bad people, but because we were already condemned for having not believed. We've covered that there is one solution and only one solution that could have resolved that tension between God's justice and God's forgiveness. And that is offered through the, to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about what kind of believing faith we need to have in the gospel and what that looks like. Jesus, after his 40 days in the wilderness, he entered into Galilee and began his ministry the same way that I'm going to close this message. He did it by declaring in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Perhaps you, like I have been guilty of before, have lost that feeling of needing a Savior. Maybe you've begun to rely on your own power. Maybe you've started to believe you've got it all handled now. Or you've fallen prey to the false idea that God saved me, now it's my job to do the rest. I want you to be assured that it's the same gospel that saves you is the same gospel that sustains you. We read in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that He who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've come to a form of belief, but you've never completely turned in true repentance. I want you to ask yourself, am I still standing on that balcony? Or have I jumped? Nothing I do saves me. But it's in my obedience that my faith is made complete. We also know that scripturally, one of the first acts of obedience for a new follower of Jesus Christ that we see is baptism. Perhaps you've been sitting on this for a while, and today you know it's time. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence about not connecting with a church body and a place to call your church home. We would love for this to be your home. In just a minute, Caleb's going to come up. Well, now Caleb's going to come up. And I want you to know that we've set aside this time for you to do business with God. Brother Lim's going to be up here, and uh, Jim's going to be up here too. I'll be down here if you just need prayer or uh, any decisions to be made.